morning. Let's say what a wonderful time of worship we've already had this morning. I want to thank Pastor Mark in particular for ably leading the music, though I have to confess I'm a little jealous of Pastor Mark because when I lead music and I ask my kids afterwards how it went, I usually get a, eh. and they say to me, Pastor Mark is better than you. We think that he is a better singer. Somebody famous once said, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And I think maybe something similar is, is going on when I lead music. So you have some fans in the Stovall household, me included. Unfortunately, or fortunately for my kids, I'm not singing today. I'm going to preach. We're going to focus mostly on Isaiah 42 this morning. So I want to go ahead and dive in, and we're just going to read the entire chapter, all of Isaiah 42. So if you want to turn there into Isaiah 42, we're going to stay, you all will stay in Isaiah 42 and a little bit in 41 for the entire sermon. All right. Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up His zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows Himself mighty against His foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. 
I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take art. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we've come before you. We've sung praises to you. We have acknowledged before you our sins. We have confessed them. We have acknowledged the pardon that we find exclusively in your son, exclusively in Jesus. We have lifted up our needs to you, recognizing that we are incapable of caring for ourselves. Father, only you can provide. And so, Father, we ask now that you would come and that you would do what only you can through your spirit. My preaching the congregation's hearing, none of it means anything if the Spirit does not come and reveal to us the truth that is found in your holy word. Father, we pray that you would do that work in our hearts now through your Spirit. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Many court trials have been dubbed the trial of the century. And if you're a history buff, you may think of the Scopes Monkey Trial. You may think of the Nuremberg Military Tribunals where Nazi war criminals were tried. You may think of the Rosenberg Espionage Trial. Or, somewhat more recently, and and, and I thought it was more recently than it was, it's actually been almost 24 years, you may think of the O.J. Simpson Trial. That makes me feel old. These proceedings can be fascinating. We watch and we wonder, how is the jury going to decide? Is justice actually going to be served? Well, today we're going to see a trial in the book of Isaiah. And it's not the trial of the century. It's not even the trial of the millennia. It's the trial of all eternity. God v. idolatry. So God is going to make a case here in the book of Isaiah. And we're primarily going to focus on chapter 2, but we need to go back 
into 41. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for not covering that last week. Um, just a bit to fully understand exactly what God is up to here in uh, chapter 42. So the backdrop, of course, for all of this is that God's people are, are in exile. Their circumstances are dire. But in chapter 41, God turns first not to his people, but to the nations, as they're called here, the Gentiles. Chapter, one, uh, chapter 41, verse 1. God calls on the coastlands, another word for Gentiles, the far reaches of the earth. And he says, let us together draw near for judgment. So God is convening court and he's about to make his case. Follow along chapter 41 verses 2 through 4a. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? So God is asking, who does these things? The question to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the idols, as we'll see in a minute, is, did you do this? You have to know a little bit of history uh, and, and some context here, but we've mentioned Cyrus before. And when God says he stirred up one from the east, he's talking about Cyrus. Cyrus is about to conquer Babylon, and God is asking the Gentiles if the idols have done this, if they're responsible for Cyrus's conquering. He's saying, did your false gods... Stir up Cyrus and give up nations to him and allow him to conquer. Verse 3 tells us that it was easy for Cyrus to do this. He passed on safely. Did the idols do this? Did Cyrus do it himself? Verse 4b, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. God is saying, you didn't do this. Cyrus didn't do this. God is saying, I did this. I am he. I am the one who sovereignly decides which nations will rise and which nations will fall. And how do the Gentiles respond to this reality of God establishing himself as the sovereign ruler? Look in verses 5 through 7. It says, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. So good so far. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come so close. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. The Gentiles, the idolaters here, what do they do? Do they submit before the sovereign God of the universe? No. They make more gods. They fashion more idols. They see the might of the Lord. They are rightly afraid, but their response is sinful. Their response is the incorrect one. So now, God's addressed the nations, the Gentiles. He now turns to his people. Starting in verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, 
You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. Make note of that word servant right there. We're going to come back to that. It's going to be important. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God reminds his people that they are set apart from the Gentiles. They are a chosen people, a called people. And even in their circumstances, even in their exile, God is in control. Verses 13 and 14. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. God is saying, fear not. I will make a way. His people shall depend on him because he will make a way. The people don't get the credit because, again, in verse 20, we see that the hand of the Lord has done this. All glory, all credit to God alone. Now, in verse 21, God continues his trial. He continues making his case. Read with me. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. He's talking to the idols here. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Check, and check up on it and see if those things came true. Or declare to us the things to come. Prophesy about the future. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, He is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these, the idols, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. God is saying, you think your gods have anything on me? Have them prove it. Tell us what they've predicted in the past and we'll judge whether or not it actually happened. Do they know the future? Prove it. Do something. Show your power. God is taunting these idols. And as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but think of Dagon. You guys remember Dagon from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5. The Philistines have captured the ark of God and they put the ark in the temple of Dagon next to a statue of Dagon. And, and this statue may have been huge, but for some reason maybe it's the might of our God against this 
idol. I just, I feel like he's about this big. Maybe he was massive. I don't know. But they put the Ark of God next to Dagon. And when they come down, uh, when they come into the temple on the morning of the next day, Dagon had fallen face down, right? And so they stand him back up. And they come back the next day. And now he's face down and his arms and his head had fallen off. And as I read, read this passage in Isaiah 41, as God questions them, I just, I just see Dagon falling over, right? God says, have the things you predicted come to pass? Bloop, down falls the idol. God says, can you tell me what's going to happen in the future? Bloop, there goes the idol. God says to the idol, show your power. Bloop, idol falls down arms and head fall off. Every sermon's better with sound effects. Um, so this is absurd, right? God is talking to inanimate objects, man-made things, pieces of wood and metal. These are the things that the people have put their hope in. Their metal images, God says, are empty when. So of course, they didn't declare, they didn't proclaim, they didn't hear, these idols, how could they? They're literally, they literally cannot speak because they are man-made things. So God is saying, when the real God stuff needs to go down, I'm the only one who can do it. He certainly doesn't have good things to say about those who fashion and believe in these idols. So again, in verse 24, speaking to the idols, he says, An abomination is he who chooses you. Earlier, when God was calling out the Gentiles, he criticized them specifically for their idolatry before he shifted to reassuring his own people. But make no mistake here, God is calling out his people's idolatry too. The idols of the Canaanites had tempted Isaiah's audience, God's people, and the gods of the Mesopotamians had tempted them in exile. His critique of idolatry is certainly a critique of the Gentile, but Gentiles, but it's a not so subtle critique of his own people as well. So now that's chapter 41. That's the introduction. So sit tight. We're going to jump into chapter 42. 41 provides our foundation for digging into chapter 42. Verse 1, chapter 42, behold, my servant. This behold here is meant to point us back to chapter 41, verse 21, uh, 24, when God says to the idols, behold, you are nothing. He's contrasting his servant with the false gods, with the idols. And remember, in verse, chapter 41, verse 8, he referred to the people of Israel as his servant. But this, in chapter 42, verse 1, this is altogether different. There's a shift here from the servant as God, God's people, and it'll actually shift back later in the chapter as we'll see, but it's a shift from God's people as a whole to the servant who will come from God's people, to an individual, to the person that we would call the Messiah, the one who will ultimately come and redeem God's people. What does he have to say about this servant? It's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God has appointed this servant. 
God upholds this servant, which means he's not only appointed him, but approves of him wholeheartedly. God delights in his servant, which is in contrast to how he despises the idols mentioned in chapter 41. God has put his spirit on him. In case you can't tell, this is special. Why has God done all of this? In order that the servant might bring forth justice to the nations. So in our court scene, we see God versus the idols. God wins that case easily. The servant is the one who actually enacts judgment, the one who will enforce that decision. The the idea here isn't just, though, that he'll punish the wicked, but that he'll make all things right, that he will redeem. He'll make things the way that they were intended to be. And notice here that this isn't just a promise to God's people, but to the nations. Again, another word for the Gentiles. This is huge and would have been a foreign concept to Isaiah's original audience. And I'm just guessing, but I would imagine that every believer in this room is one who has taken advantage of the fact that God sent his servant to the Gentiles. Verse 2, the servant will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He won't be loud. He won't be boastful. He will be meek. You might expect, and the Jews certainly did, that such a servant would come with pomp and bombast. The first clue that that wasn't going to happen is that he should have been that he was called a servant. But the expectation that he was going to come and impress and make much of himself. But that's not him. That's not our servant. His humility will be evident by how little he makes of himself. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The idea here is that the servant will be gentle. A bruised reed is something that's useless to be tossed out. And a faintly burning wick is a lamp that's just about to go out itself. The servant will deal with his people gently. He'll nurture those who are weak and come alongside them. Four, he won't grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. He has a goal that he will absolutely accomplish. He is gentle, but he is completely unyielding. Justice in all the earth. That's the goal. The coastlands, the far reaches of the earth, wait for his law. Verse 5. It's a bit of a transition here. God reiterates that he's the creator, that he gives life. That same God is the one who calls us to behold his servant. And we see some qualities of the servant. We see a bit of who he is. We have seen that already. But then God turns to address the servant himself. Verse 6, God says to the servant, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Again, the servant will be upheld by the Lord. Called in righteousness here is not really the idea that the servant would be righteous, though that is certainly true of the servant, but it's the idea that he will be rightly called. In other words, the servant that God has appointed is the right man for the job, the only man for the job. I will give you as a covenant for the people, says the Lord. If the Jews were not paying attention up to this point, this would have perked up their ears. When you start talking to Jewish people about a covenant, particularly a covenant in the form of a person, they think David. 
For the Jews, especially these exiled, hopeless Jews to whom Isaiah was speaking, the mention of the servant as the covenant would have reminded them of God's promise to them that David, a David, would rule over God's people forever. This reminder, this promise, carries with it so much hope for the people who are otherwise without hope. The servant will be a light for the nations, a light which will open the eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. The servant reveals truth that brings freedom. Verses 8 and 9, God again reminds us who he is. Forget about the idols, he says, my glory belongs to me. The things I promised in the past, they happen. All those questions he asks about the idols, God makes good with answers. Now, he says, I'm telling you about the things that will happen before they happen. God has made his case against the idols. He's easily won that case, and he's provided a way out of that idolatry in the form of his servant. The announcement of this servant is met with unprecedented praise. Verse 10, God is calling the entire world to sing to the Lord a new song. The nations dreaded the conquerors of Babylon, but they'll sing for joy the coming of God's servant. Verse 13, God will go out like a mighty man. He will show himself mighty against his foes. Verse 14, he will no longer hold his peace. Like a woman in labor, there is pain in anticipation of great joy. God is saying pain will soon be no more. Justice is coming, and joy is coming with it. Wickedness and sin seemingly reign from now, but soon things will be made right. No obstacle will stand in his way. God will do this through his servant. So what about this servant? I've already mentioned that the servant is the Messiah, and this is a Christian church, so it should come as no surprise to you that I believe that the servant is Jesus. That's not an original opinion, nor is it a particularly uh, controversial opinion in Christian circles, but sometimes I feel like we read through the Old Testament and we get a vague sense about some prophecy that it might be about Jesus, or we read the New Testament and we get a vague sense that something that Jesus said or did maybe points back to the Old Testament, but I want to go through and briefly thoroughly, certainly not exhaustively, I, I want to match up some of what we see here in Isaiah 42 to Jesus's life and ministry. I don't want you to flip to the New Testament. If you would, just stay in Isaiah 42. I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but you'll see in the verses of Isaiah 42 how some of the New Testament passages about Christ match up. All right. Let's start with one of the most obvious ones. Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Jesus performs a miracle. The Pharisees were out to get him, so he withdraws. He healed more people, and he ordered them not to make him known. The book of Matthew tells us in verse 17 that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So it's spelled out there for you, right there. He quotes... Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, in the book of Matthew. Jesus' act of healing there showed his gentleness, 
His compassion and that same, the same gentleness and compassion that we see from the servant in Isaiah 42, verse 3. Jesus ordered those that he healed not to make him known. Why? Because he didn't cry aloud. He didn't make his voice heard in the street, as we see here in Isaiah 42, 2. He didn't make much of himself. Not only does Matthew explicitly tell us that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, doesn't this, this passage in Isaiah 42 echo Jesus' teaching? For example, Matthew 6, 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Jesus not only embodied and modeled Isaiah 42 too, he commanded us to behave the same way. Okay, back to 42 verse 1. Listen to Matthew 3, 16 through 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God is upon him, and in him God's soul delights. Take a look at Isaiah 42.6, compared to John 8.12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at Isaiah 42, 7, compared to Luke 4, 17 and 18. This one is just as obvious as Matthew 12. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus picks up the scroll and he reads Isaiah Chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which is a repetition of what's already been said in Isaiah 42, verse 7. Two things that I found astounding about this. Number one, Jesus leaves nothing up to the imagination. He reads it, and right after he does, he says to everyone in the synagogue, By the way, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? No doubt whatsoever. Jesus is saying the servant that God promised, the servant about whom Isaiah spoke, the Messiah, I am him. And as if that wasn't enough, there's a second thing that I personally find astounding about these verses. When Isaiah says that the servant will open the eyes that are blind, I think he's being figurative. I think what he's saying here is that the servant will reveal truth. 
When he says the servant will open the eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, Isaiah is saying that the servant will reveal truth and free captives from their sin. He's saying the same thing two different ways. It's figurative language. (laughs) But Jesus, in fulfilling this prophecy, goes a step further. He says, I'll see your figurative language and I will raise you literally healing blind people. Think about that. That's incredible. My favorite instance of this is when Jesus heals the blind man in John 9. In the same passage where he heals the man, he says about himself in verse 5, I am the light of the world. He heals the man right after this. So he makes a proclamation about being the figurative light of the world, and then he literally shows a blind man light for the first time in his life. This is incredible. Lastly, and in keeping with what we read in John 9, let me read Matthew eleven two through 5. And when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. John was familiar with Isaiah 42 and all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He's hearing rumblings about what Jesus is doing, and maybe John's nervous because he's in prison like the exiles in Isaiah 42 too. So he asks, and he gets an answer. You might read this, and you might think to yourself, why is Jesus being so evasive? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if he would have just said, yes, John, I am the Messiah, right? Case closed. For a good Jew like John, Jesus' answer was far better and richer than a simple yes. In the same way that God demonstrated himself to the idolaters in Isaiah 41, Jesus demonstrated who he was, not just by what he said, but by what he did. Folks, Jesus proves over and over and over again that he is the servant, that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. If the story of salvation history were a movie with one of those twist endings, we would be bored to tears by it. Why? Because you can see this ending coming a million miles away. If you know your Old Testament, when you read the Gospels, there is no doubt who Jesus is. It's not subtle, not even a little bit. People who can read the scriptures and come away questioning whether or not Jesus is the Messiah are, in my opinion, deluded. All right, back to our trial. So God God has made his case here. The case is open and shut. It's like a case where a crime has been committed. You got like 200 witnesses. You got 27 uh, CCTV cameras from all different angles. You got DNA evidence and a signed confession. That's an easy case to decide. So God makes his case against idolatry and he wins the judgment. God puts the idols on trial and he says... 
Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Idols can't do this. Why? Again, because they're man-made trinkets, metal images, empty wind. They are nothing, and their work is less than nothing. Of course, we are far too enlightened in this day and age to fashion golden calves or to stand up Dagon next to the Ark of God, right? We wouldn't do that. I would be surprised if any of you were fashioning statues to which you were bowing down. It's possible. But idolatry is so much more subtle and sinister than that. What is an idol? Well, to answer that, I want to quote uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, and by the way, highly recommend this book. Get a copy of it, read it. It's fantastic. He says, and I quote, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has so much a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a, rom a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but really, it's idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as an idol, especially the very best things in life. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, and even family and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. End quote. We may not be fashioning trinkets to worship, but we all, every one of us, have idols. How would our idols fare in the trial against God? Can your money tell us former things? Nope. Well, then we probably shouldn't fill our bank accounts and hoard it or buy a bunch of stuff with it that we don't need. Can your jobs tell us what is to come hereafter? No. Well, then we probably shouldn't let our job be the end-all, be-all of our existence. Can our family do good or do harm that we may dis be dismayed and terrified? No. Then why would we put the burden of expectation on them hoping that they will fulfill us or achieve something that fulfills us or meet our needs. 
Countless other things that we could list here. Addiction, entertainment, anything that we look at to fulfill us. We as a culture in this country, we are the wealthiest culture to ever live on the face of the planet. And we are the most depressed, the most over-medicated, the most without hope. Why? Because we idolize. We put our hope and our faith and trust in things that were never meant to bear that burden. You may have gathered that the idols here, God is on, uh, conducting a trial against the idols. They're not really the problem. The idols themselves are not really the things that God judges. This picture of God versus the idols, it's a helpful illustration, but it's not quite accurate, nor is it intended to be. God isn't being judged. He is the judge. He's not judging idols. He's judging idolaters. We are idolaters, all of us. Isaiah 42, 24 tells us that we have sinned against the Lord. The case against us, open and shut. We stand accused by the God of the universe. <laughs> the glove does fit, and he will not acquit. For you younger folks, you can Google that one uh, when you get home. <laughs> Isaiah 42.1 tells us that God will judge through his servant. Justice will be served. 1 Peter 4 verse 5 tells us that we will all give account to him who is ready to judge. <laughs> but praise God that that same servant he sent to judge is the same one who saves. He is both judge and he is stand-in defendant. He can't, we can't stand as defendants because we are guilty. Christ, who is guilty of absolutely no sin whatsoever, stands in our place and takes the penalty for us. The servant, Christ, does what Adam couldn't do. He does what we can't do. And because of that, we can be saved. But we can't handle that truth. We can't handle that reality. Look at Isaiah 42. God says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? He goes back here to referring to his people as a servant. I want to be very clear about that. This is not talking about Jesus. Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Sin is the air we breathe. Telling a sinner they're a sinner without the conviction of the Holy Spirit is like telling a fish it's wet. Not only do we need the servant to stand in our place and be judged, we need the same servant to open our blind eyes and free us from the prison of our own sin. Free us from our idols. Isaiah 42.16 says that the servant will lead the blind. He will guide us. 1 Peter 4.6 The gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh, that we might live in the Spirit. Through the work of His servant, God the judge 
looks on us and sees life where there was once death. Has God done this work in you? Have you set aside your idols recognizing that they don't fulfill? You know that. Deep in your heart, the idols that you've set up, the idols that we've all set up, we feel the disappointment. We recognize the reality that they don't live up to the burden that we've placed on them. Only God can do that. Has God's servant worked in you to take what was dead in the flesh and make it alive in the spirit? God is calling the dead to come to life. He seeks to heal our blindness and free us from the prison of our own sin. Let's pray.